This is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. everyone we've got another super special and exciting bonus episode for you so we had a chat with isabel greenberg who is an illustrator and novelist and she has just written glass town which is a fabulous graphic novel um speculating on the juvenilia of the brontes yeah um so isabel shared some early press of, of about this publication with us she said that um, well, so the Observer called it, quote, one of the best books about the Brontes juvenilia ever written. And the Evening Standard noted that Greenberg is impressively well informed about the Brontes, but handles her facts lightly, allowing full power to the beautiful and sensitive images. So Glastown was released in the UK on the 6th of February, and it is going to be released in the United States with Abrams Books on March 3rd of this year. So rush to your favorite book supplying shop. Why did I say it that way? I don't know. Um, <laughs> Wherever you can get it, your library, your bookstore. Yeah. Support independent bookstores if you can, but libraries are always amazing too. I was just going to say, I apologize in advance for anyone like Courtney who gets FOMO from um, Isabel and I talking about Haworth. It's obviously, it's a huge privilege that i was able to go there because it was about an hour away from where i went to university but one day i'll go one day yes you have to come yeah and um let us know on twitter or facebook or via email uh who your favorite bronte is and uh who your first bronte is since that is a topic of conversation today i i don't know i go back and forth i think i'm i have to say i'm team emily though because uh emily emily's weathering heights was the first bronte novel that I ever read and um yeah but I I love all of their work actually equally so yeah um I have to shamefully admit now that I never actually finished Wuthering Heights it was the first one I read but I stopped reading it halfway through because uh. when I was doing my A-levels so that's like the equivalent of 12th grade um or 11th and 12th we we knew we were going to do one of Wuthering Heights or Tess of the Dervilles, so I started reading them both, and then I found out I was doing Tess, and abandoned, cruelly abandoned Wuthering Heights. So I will say that, like, I'm a sucker for a very depressing story, and that's what <laughs> Wuthering Heights delivers. Like, I don't know, yeah. every time I read it, I find something new to be heartbroken about, but, like, the last couple of times, it's been about the fact that... Um, one of the characters who I won't name, just in case you haven't read it, is um, like forcibly illiterate. And like that, that's probably the most tragic thing about the novel to me as somebody who's got three English degrees. Yeah. Yeah, now I'm thinking about the logic of assigning two incredibly depressing books to right? 17 and 18 year olds. But that's. Yeah, I'm an unashamed hipster, so Tenant of Wildfell Hall is my favorite. And I guess that would make me team Anne. 
Now you know. <laughs> also, I will tweet out. There's a picture of there's a picture of Anne in the National Portrait Gallery. Well, it's it's the Brunt. Uh, heck, they're all Bronte. Um, it's the Bramwell picture of Charlotte, Emily, and Anne, huh. um, which is the National Portrait Gallery. And I really think Anne looks like Taylor Swift in this picture. I'm just trying to think if I saw that when I was there because I think I did. I think I took a picture of it. I'm sure you will have. It's quite prominent. Because it's got kind of that like green, gr- greenish hue to it. Is it the one that's... Yeah, it's the one where like Bramwell's painted over the spot that he left for himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't remember her looking like Taylor Swift, but now I'm going to have to <laughs> dig through my pictures to see. That's hilarious. Yeah, I'll post the picture on uh, Twitter. I mean, like, Shake It shake it Off is a great ballad for Anne's life. I will say that. Yes. So without further ado, our conversation with Isabel Greenberg. We do have the bio that you provided us, but I wonder if there's anything else. Could you tell us a little bit about um, who you are and like what brought you to this project? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, uh, so my name is Isabel Greenberg and I'm an illustrator and writer um, from London, England. Um, and um, I'm the author of three graphic novels. Um, the first two are called The Encyclopedia of Early Earth and The Hundred Nights of Hero. Um, and they are set in an imaginary world of my own invention. And they're sort of fantastical and about mythology and um, folk tales. Um, but my most recent graphic novel, Glass Town, um, is a adaptation and kind of, um, not, I couldn't say it's a biography. It's more of a kind of, fantasy meets fiction adaptation of the Bronte juvenilia, um, specifically Charlotte and Branwell's juvenilia, sort of the world they created, um, Angria and, and Glasgow. Um, and I came to that subject matter kind of from a place of someone who had been interested in building worlds myself. Um, I'd always been a fan of the Bronte's novels, um, but I knew nothing about their juvenilia um growing up at all um and when i when i discovered it and sort of found out that as children they had created this um amazing amazing world it felt as someone else who'd sort of made a world i'm not saying mine's anywhere near as amazing as theirs theirs was pretty epic um i i sort of felt intrigued and that's sort of how i first got into the juvenilia was from the perspective of you know sort of wondering how they'd created such a um, detailed and vast body of work um, from such a young age. Yeah, that's such a good point. I mean, as Courtney said, we usually um, look at lesser-known writers, but I think there's a case to be made for the lesser-known writing of writers like the Brontes who've kind of retained their place. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think the juvenilia has been... Um, it hasn't been 
particularly, you know, I studied the Bontes at school. I'd read all their novels. I didn't think there was like anything, not that there was nothing new to discover, but I hadn't, you know, I thought I'd read everything by them. And so when I sort of found out that there was all this stuff, all this amazing work that they'd done when they were younger, I was sort of, I was kind of gobsmacked. So I think there's definitely a case to be made um, for, yeah, you know, saying, casting a light on this lesser known area of their work, I suppose. Yeah, thank you so much for that um, background. So have you been able to sort of see their juvenilia in person or um, uh, how did you sort of dig deeper into that? So um, I've seen some, a few small things. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the Bronte stuff is, um, unfortunately, from my perspective, in America. Um, the, after Charlotte died, um, her husband um, had a lot of her papers and so did some of her friends and they got, it all got very scattered and letters and papers and things ended up all over the world. Um, but the Bronte Parsonage in Yorkshire um, have a pretty amazing collection and I did see um, a couple of small pieces um, but um, not not anything like as much as I would have liked to have seen so a lot of the stuff I had to look at was just on the internet um, but I went up to the parsonage um, three or four times for research trips um, to draw and just sort of find out um, I felt like it was very important to go to the places where they had been um, because um, one of the things I was most interested in is how they had created such this such a vivid world when in fact they really particularly you know they really hadn't been anywhere they lived in this very remote um, you know part of Yorkshire in a small town and they didn't travel um, and so how you know I wanted to see what their influences were and what they would have seen because I think when trying to visualize what they might have visualized, um, I felt like it must have had a root in what they they were seeing. Um, so I felt like it was important to capture the atmosphere of their reality, as well as sort of letting myself go off on, off on these sort of flights of fancy about what their imaginary world would have been like. Yeah, one of the things that um, I've mentioned to Courtney is I was really impressed by the level of detail. Because I, so I went to university in Yorkshire, so I've been to the parsonage. And I recognise the writing block on the, um, <laughs> yeah, the right writing block. There's quite a prominent writing block in the parsonage, isn't there? Is that yeah, the yeah. inspiration? I I sort of I went um, I went around the parsonage several times and I drew quite accurate maps of every room. I sort of documented and photographed all the objects that I felt um, sort of seemed, I don't know, that sort of spoke to me, I suppose. Because um, I wanted the background, I wanted it to be as rich as possible. And I liked the idea of people who had been to the parsonage or, you know, recognising certain things. A bit like I, I threw in a lot of characters and details from the juvenilia that weren't necessarily relevant to the plot I was pursuing. Um, but I liked the idea that people who had read it would, would pick up on these small things and it might be satisfying. And I wanted to do the same in the background. So um, visually, you know, they're a little... Yeah, there are lots of little things that I sort of sketched from the parsonage that are really there, like the writing block and um, uh, I can't remember what else I sort of found. But there's lots of little like clocks on mantelpieces and stuff that I had photographed and um, sort of came back home and drew. Yeah, that was a really nice kind of Easter egg. And the fact that it was on the very first page, I was like, this is... I knew I was expecting something good and was... Yeah, 
I really enjoyed reading it and seeing those little Easter eggs. Thank you. Maybe, as you mentioned, the other Juvenalia, I think a lot of listeners, as we've said, might not be familiar with all of it. Um, Can you kind of tell us a bit more about the Juvenalia? Oh, absolutely. Um, So the, I think the sort of most famous story that people kind of know is that um, Patrick Bronte, their father, brought home a box of toy soldiers um, that were meant to be for Branwell. Um, Mm. He shared them with his sisters because he was a benevolent kind of big brother, clearly. Um, and they each took a toy soldier and sort of gave it a gave it a name. And Charlotte called hers um, Wellington because she had a something of a crush, I think, on him. Branwell uh, <laughs> uh, called his Napoleon. Um, and Emily and Anne also had their each had their own soldier. And the world, the kind of the sort of early worlds that they created, they made for the soldiers. And the books were tiny, so that they were for the soldiers. Um, and this, that was just the genesis and it ended up developing far beyond, you know, the box of toy soldiers. But I think the most like famous sort of story is that it sort of sparked off with, with those. Um, when, so they first, they were all four of them were involved in the creation of Andrea and Glasstown. Um, but Emily and Anne broke away and formed their own rival kingdom, Gondal, um, which I love. I think that's just mm. such a cool bit of sibling. Um, you know, rivalry. Um, and I think they didn't, um, it was a very private world between the two of them. And not a lot of information about Gondor remains. Uh, that was the main reason why I chose to focus on the last town rather than Gondor, um, simply because there was just less material. Um, and also, I think people have quite, um, people, I feel like people are very attached to the myth of Emily. And I didn't feel so nervous about imagining a characterized version of charlotte whereas i felt like if i tried to imagine an emily i'd just get it everyone would be like no that's not how i imagine emily if you know what i mean yeah that's really interesting because obviously charlotte is kind of the one that most people know i would think possibly just because she wrote obviously lived long enough to write more books but emily does have such a strong personality coming across i feel like she's most she's like I don't know. I don't think she's necessarily everyone's favourite Bronte, but I do think she has this like cool thing going on and she's definitely the cool Bronte. Um, you know, like she kind of just like strides across the moor, it's like with her like skirts tucked up and she like, you know, she knew how to shoot Patrick's gun and um, was sort of rude and sassy and um, wrote like probably the weirdest of all their novels. Um, and so I just, I just didn't think there was a way I could write her that would satisfy everyone's mythology of her somehow whereas charlotte um well first of all there is a lot of charlotte hating i discovered um in my research um and that sort of like perversely made me feel quite sorry for her um actually and i don't know i I felt quite warmly towards charlotte um and i mean i like them all i don't have a favorite bronte really but i did i felt quite warmly towards charlotte and i kind of i was interested in um I don't know, I guess her, I felt like of all of them, she was the one who in a way escaped the fantasy world most successfully. Um, she sort of put it behind her much with much more finality than any of her other siblings. And um, it was sort of interesting to me that, that she did that. And also there's the sort of poignant tragedy of her being the last one alive. And I found that 
just terribly moving really that you would have such close collaboration with your siblings and then you know you would be the last one mm. it's, it's fascinating that you said that you came across a lot of charlotte haters i yeah. <laughs> like why <laughs> why why the hatred of charlotte well okay so there's this thing that she burnt emily and anne's gondol material um which i actually don't believe because I think that um, I personally, so I read this really amazing biography of Anne called Take Courage, which I'd recommend to anyone. It's just truly moving and fantastic. But in, and I would say Charlotte doesn't necessarily get the best um, write-up in this particular biography, but the author says that she believes that Emily and Anne would have done it themselves because they sort of had such a private, it was so private and personal to them. And I really like that take on it. And I think it gives Anne more ownership over her own, um, I don't know, destiny, I suppose. But I think that Charlotte gets a lot of hate because she didn't necessarily manage the legacy of her sisters terribly well. And she, you know, like she said of, of the tenant of Wildfell Hall, she said that she thought that it was a sort of, and also Wuthering Heights, that they were both kind of like scandalous books and, what had her sisters been thinking and, and stuff like that and she definitely you know made some edits and things that were questionable but also the way I see it is that she had this like mammoth task which was you know she had been they had died and she wanted she wanted them and she wanted them to be remembered well and she thought you know the way I see it is that she thought that you know she respected them as writers they'd been writing um, they'd been a sort of writing team for years, not necessarily writing in this working together, but they had bounced ideas off each other. And there's those amazing descriptions of them pacing round and round the table, sort of telling each other their ideas. And, you know, they were this sort of intimate literary salon. And I just, I think that she mismanaged their legacy because she wanted the best for them, but just went, got it so wrong. Um and that's that's how I read it. But then, you know, I'm mythologizing her just like you can mythologize Emily. Um, and yeah, one of the, the other things I discovered in my research is just how much um, mythologizing there is around all of them. Mm -hmm. And everyone is like, oh, I'm a I'm an Anne, I'm a Charlotte, or you know, I I, I really mm -hmm. think she would have felt this, and I would have been friends with her. And I found myself doing the same. Like, you know, when I went to Haworth, it was such a the, the Bronte Parsonage is a really, I think it's a really special place, and it really creates this amazing atmosphere that I think makes you feel connected to them, particularly read their novels, which can be so, which is so intimate. And I think mm. the more deeper you delve, the more you can kind of, I certainly found myself getting a bit caught up um, in their sort of, you know, I was like, I, I would be friends with them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it is, and it's unfortunate that, Everyone can't experience this, but it is really special to go to the parsonage and see quite how close the pub is, is one thing that really struck me. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. You can just, you, you're like, wow, Branwell did not have far to go. <laughs> um, no, it's very close. Yeah. Did you, I found as well, like there was something quite, it wasn't at all off-putting that all the cafes were called like Cafe Villette and that the place was like chock-a-block with Bronte tourists in a way that. I found that sort of added to it. There was something quite like delightful about the fact that, you know, they had, it was, you know, their writing had created this legend that people, people were still pil 
coming on these pilgrimages to this small town to pay their respects and I thought that was just yeah I found it very moving yeah rather than it didn't it didn't ruin the atmosphere for me at all there's something really nice about it being this small town that like you say most of them didn't really leave um like they're so closely tied to this town and it like you say it's really nice actually that their memory is a big part of it still yeah I love it and I wonder what they would sort of think of Cafe Villette and, you know, Wuthering Heights Hill and, you know, all that. I I, I feel like maybe they'd be quite tickled by it. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> yeah, we had talked about asking you your favourite Bronte, but I guess you've said that you don't have one, which is a very fair um, assessment. Yeah, I mean, people keep asking me what, who my favourite Bronte is, and I feel like there's a Bronte for every occasion somehow. Like, I think Charlotte, I feel like I would probably have the most in common with Charlotte, but I think she would be, like, quite awkward, quite a difficult friend. Um, she could be quite emotionally needy, maybe. I mm. think Emily would be the cool one, but you'd never know what she was thinking and you'd always be, like, trying to impress her and, like, make funny remarks to make her laugh and she'd always just be very aloof and you'd never know if she liked you or not. I think Anne would probably be like the most relaxing company to hang out with. Um, I think she'd probably be the easiest. Uh, and I guess if you wanted a rager of a night out, you'd go out with grandma probably. <laughs> yeah. So maybe a better question is who was your first Bronte? Charlotte was my first Bronte. Yeah. Um, the first um, of the first novel I read was of, of theirs was um, Jane Eyre, um, and although I have a lot of love for Wuthering Heights. I've got a lot of love for the tenant of Wildfell Hall. I think for me, there's something uh, very perfect about Jane Eyre that I do, I do love. But what I love about Wuthering Heights is that every time I read it, I find something new. Um, mm. And I read it, I read it in such a different way as an adult to how I read it as a teenager. As a teenager, I think I just found it quite, quite weird. Um, and I think I had assumed that it would be a kind of quite simple love story. Um, I was a bit taken aback by Heathcliff um, and just the whole book with its sort of wildness and weirdness. I think I didn't quite get it. Whereas reading it as an adult, I, I, there's so many things about it that I appreciate. And there are so many little bits of hidden humour that I just didn't see when I first read it. And that's that's something I love about, about Wuthering Heights. That's really interesting. I was having a conversation with a friend the other day because um, I'd mentioned that I've been reading Glastown and she had the sense that there's a real or it came out of that conversation that there seems to be a real divide between people who are mega fans of Jane Eyre and people who are mega fans of Wuthering Heights and that's a bit yeah, of a dichotomy. I, yeah, exactly is. And then I guess you've got like wildcard people who are like Villette all the way. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've um, I like them both. I think they're such different novels, and you'd never compare them if they hadn't been written by sisters. Yeah, because um, they're just completely different. Um, mm -hmm. And I want, yeah, it's. I wonder. Yeah, I, I don't think you would compare them if they if they hadn't been written by a pair of sisters, really. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm that person over in the corner saying Tenant is my favorite, but. Tennant is great as well, yeah. And I, it's actually, for me, what I loved most about that was, I think the first time I read it, I was like, yeah, it's okay. You know, I liked it. 
good read. But then the more I dug into the Bronte's history and the more I discovered about them, the more that book seemed like I didn't realise when I first read it how radical it was as a book to have been written in that time. And also that Anne, who in a way was like the least, she's always portrayed as being the sort of like the quiet one, the pious one or whatever. And actually she wrote in a way the most, yeah, the most radical of all their books. Like she wrote a book about, you know, women leaving her husband. It's amazing. And it's quite poignant when you know the Branwell backstory as well. Oh, yeah. And the sort of the way she describes the sort of descent um, is, yeah, it's when you sort of imagine her, what what she was drawing on. It's very sad. Mm. So I wonder um, if there, if in your research for Glasstown, if you came across anything that was particularly surprising or unexpected um, I mean, everything, I found everything about the juvenilia surprising, to be honest, because <laughs> it was just so weird. Um, there was so much weirdness in there and so much that I couldn't put in. Like, um, <laughs> there was sort of, I've got pages and pages of kind of notes I've made where I've been trying to unravel the plot arcs of particular characters. And, you know, there's... Zamorna, who does feature in, in my book and is sort of Charlotte, one of Charlotte's most famous um, inventions of Juvenalia. Um, there's this kind of plot, there's this plot thread where he gets, um, she gives him a secret twin and they can't ever be in the same room together or one of them will die. Um, there's just so many wild things that I couldn't put in. Um, and that was, that was amazing. The other thing that surprised me, I think, was just how, and like this shouldn't have surprised me because they were children of their time, but I was a little bit shocked when I was reading the Juvenalia by how sort of colonial they were. Mm. And it's not to say that their books, their novels aren't, but it had definitely, those leanings had definitely been tempered. Whereas the stuff they wrote when they were kids, it's very much like Rule Britannia, um, you know, conquer, conquest, the glory of war. Um, yeah, and that stuff was quite, hmm. uh, I was sort of, I guess, semi-surprised by that, but not a shock of it, I suppose. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is surprising to hear, but also makes sense considering they were, you know, fresh out of school or attending school as they went you know, hearing these messages on a more regular basis. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were reading a lot of, like they read, a lot of their influences came from their father and what he was reading. Um, And they were kind of self-professed Tories. Um, Yeah, so that was was interesting. But um, I guess other things that surprised me... um, I liked finding out, I feel like everyone has, it, when I sort of spoke to people, you know, in the uh, process of my research, there are so many sort of like great little facts and anecdotes about them all. Um, like, uh, what fun things did I find out? Um, I really like, um, I'm blanking now, but yeah, I just found out with lots of really like intriguing, nice little anecdotes and I couldn't even use all of them, but some of them I I tried to sort of slot in. 
but lots were just um yeah just strange things about their childhood and little facts that people i think different things about different brontes stick in different people's minds so they say oh did you know that you know um did you know the story about emily and the dog and you're like no what's the story about emily and the dog and you know and so on so that was that was exciting i think finding out these little details Hmm. yeah i was going to say the one that always sticks in my mind is a story about um is it Anne who wakes Branwell up when the house is on fire? Something around. Oh, I don't know which one of them does. When he's like set his own bed on fire sort of thing or whatever. Yeah, and he just kind of waves her away and goes, it's fine. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> I think because they were so, I guess because they achieved fame quite, I guess, in Charlotte's life, um, it meant that the people who people who knew them around the village and stuff could already sort of start mythologizing about them almost before Charlotte had died and that I guess means you have lots of sort of amazing strange little first hand anecdotes that have infiltrated their way you know into sort of and I suppose there's the Gaskell biography that's full of like lots of juicy juicy stuff I guess I'm wondering like why this story now what what do you think um the juvenilia or the story of the Brontes as children uh, has to offer contemporary audiences or why why is the story appealing in 2020? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I guess, this is going to sound really bad, I was really interested in it. So I was like, if I'm interested, why wouldn't everyone else be? Um, which is a terrible way to probably approach um embarking on a project but I think that in any in any time there is a place for asking questions about the power of imagination and the importance of storytelling um I think that the world that they created the kind of that the sort of scope and the detail and the scale I don't think that we I don't think that children, I don't think, I, I, just, I wonder if we are capable of creating worlds like that now and throwing ourselves into them with as much um, sort of a whole, they threw everything in, into it. And one of the things I found most fascinating in my research was seeing how their reality and their fantasy world blurred. And I wonder if today it's possible for that to happen because we just have so many other outside stimuli and places to entertain ourselves that I wonder if we don't um, look in and use our imaginations as much as we could now. I'm not sure. Um, but that was something I asked myself a lot when I was when I was making it. Like I certainly wouldn't have had the concentration span as a child to do what they did. Mm. And I wonder if that is just because the mind numbing boredom of being a child in the Victorian times, <laughs> I kind of inspired this sort of these incredible flights of fantasy, yeah. and now we have like, you know, um, CBBC, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's always something happening. Yeah, and that is not a bad thing. Like, I'm glad I wasn't a Victorian child, you know, with a really high infant mortality rate and. Mm. you know danger of consumption 
around the corner. I'm like thoroughly glad I wasn't born a Victorian child. But it's interesting. One of the things I did question a lot was like, you know, could, would, can people, do we get juvenilia like that now? It's almost like they were outsider artists or something. Like they created it in such isolation with, not isolation, you know, they weren't isolated, but they, it, it feels like they sparked this incredible world from, from within rather than from that many external factors. I don't know. I'm not sure if that's not fair, but. That was something I was interested in. And I, I think that's a question that we can ask at any any time. And like, you know, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Gaskell, when she wrote their biography, wasn't particularly interested in their juvenilia. And I think she said something like, um, they were like, sort of, I can't remember what the word she used, something like um, quaint, childish, um, you know, precocious scribblings or something. I can't remember her exact wording. But she didn't necessarily um, see the um, importance of them. And I think one of the first people who looked into them was a woman called Fanny Ratchford, um, who I read um, her her like work in the juvenile when I was researching, and um, she I think had a real passion for it, and she tried to like string together, for example, some of Emily's poetry into a, a sort of plot that you could decipher, um, which I found very helpful because I'm quite bad at reading poetry, so. For me, having it sprung together into a plot was extremely very helpful indeed. Um, but it's, you know, I think people have been periodically fascinated by this this work, and I hope that, you know, I hope that if people enjoy my graphic novel, they might seek out some of the juvenilia and um, find something in it for themselves. I'm not sure I've answered your question there about why it's important now. I think you have. I, I mean, I really think both of your answers are really fair like I'm as as a writer myself I often think like I mean what what is bringing your interests and your passion to the world except like sharing kind of a spark of like you know inspiration or fire or or hope and I think that's really important in and of itself but yeah I think I mean I'm gonna be thinking about yeah that attention span and that focus that is it something we can still capture in the in the present moment that's a that's a question for yeah. sure i mean i feel like my brain is so is always so it's always thinking about 10 different things at once you know i'm watching mm. the news i'm reading twitter i'm thinking about the three different jobs that i'm doing simultaneously i'm mm-hmm. ordering some tiles you know i'm do, always doing a million things and even when i was a child i think yeah. my brain was always off in a hundred different places and i wonder if they were just unique in their focus or if it was the product of, of the um of the time i'm not sure so i wondered obviously your two previous novels have been works of fiction how does well i guess how does the graphic novel format shape your process but then how different was it to write a semi non-fiction work it was quite different yeah um my previous two books had been like fairly research heavy in that um read a lot yeah. i sort of a lot of the stories in them are based on folk tales and mythology so i sort of read around quite a bit but it didn't in no way was the researcher's focus and i didn't feel like i had to stay true to anything at all and that was quite a change because um in a way the hardest thing about glass town was 
not the, was all this material that I had to let go. I I got so attached at, at certain points to the source material and wanting to put certain facts in and certain incidences and you know that could have been both from their real life but also from things in the juvenilia that letting stuff go and being like okay I'm going to put the research aside now and I'm going to let myself let my imagination and my storytelling part of the brain take over um that was quite hard um but I think it was the of all of all three of my books it's the one I've enjoyed the most and I loved you know I really really enjoyed the research sort of portion of it and sculpting the story um, and taking using the bits that I wanted and and then sort of inserting my own narratives and my own sort of stamp onto that it was I found it really satisfying and it was a different way of working but one that I really enjoyed yeah I think what you were saying about um one of the hardest bits of research is deciding which bits aren't going to be included strikes such a chord as a researcher <laughs> yeah <laughs> like but it's that's just so good how can i let it go yeah. um so yeah the the evil you know zamora's evil twin or whatever that just was just one of many things that i had to say goodbye to <laughs> and also i also had to you know i think there's a lot of i i didn't put in anything about charlotte's time in brussels i didn't really talk about you know what happened to branwell i barely you know, I sort of skirted around the edge of Gondor, but didn't, you know, there was so much that even in their biographies that I couldn't even touch mm. on. And I think in a way that was quite good because if I'd have been writing a straight biography of their lives, I would have been so tied to being true to dates and, and sort of realities that I think I wouldn't have been able to, um, I wouldn't have been able to get into the juvenilia in the way that I wanted to. Um, and it had to be adapted because it's such a vast body of work and one that wasn't intended for publication so it's sort of confusing and contradictory and characters change and evolve as they worked on it over 10 years you couldn't I, I don't think there's a, a possible way that you could have done a, a straight adaptation of the juvenilia so I think it had to be approached in a kind of like left field sort of way um, and I looked you know, at the time I was researching to find out if there'd been mm. many other adaptations of the Juvenalia, and there there are there aren't that many. There's a children's book that came out a couple of years ago that was really lovely, um, called The Glass Town Game that I I really enjoyed. It's for younger readers, mm-hmm. um, and I thought that was really I sort of read that when I just I just started working on Glass Town, and I was like, no, oh no, this is terrible. I, I can't stop my project immediately. Um, but then I read it and I was like, no, it's okay. Like, you know, we're approaching this in extremely different ways. And every other sort of approach I had discovered by, you know, different people, everyone had come at it from a different way because it's such a huge elephant of a body of work. And I think, you know, it's not like adapting a book for screen. It's, there's just so much, you know, you could, I could have written, I could think of 15 different graphic novels I could have written about their juvenilia. Um, and this was just the one I, I went for, I guess. Hmm. So I, I think those were all of our questions for you, but was there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't ask you about? Um, no, I think you've asked really good questions. <laughs> um, oh gosh. Uh, is there anything I wish you'd asked me about? Um, 
No, I, th- I think that's super. Um, it's been, your questions have been really good. Um, it's, it's really interesting, um, sort of unpacking. I think when you're writing, like when I'm writing stuff, I don't really think about why I'm doing it, um, very often. And it's always kind of illuminating when someone's like, but why did you do that? Good question. <laughs> Let's unpack that. <laughs> good, good. We've, we've really enjoyed talking to you this morning or this afternoon for you. Yeah the name for me <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah like Courtney said it's been really interesting talking to you and I really enjoyed reading the book oh, thank you. so thank you for um sharing that with us um no problem thank you very much for having me so yeah thank you so it's already out in the UK when does yes um and it comes out in America on the 3rd yes. of March yeah. um and it's published by Abrams um so the uh, American copy I'm quite excited about has a dust jacket, Ooh. which the UK edition does not have. But the UK edition has shiny gold writing, so everyone gets, you know, both editions have their perks. Ooh. Yeah, that's something special for everyone. I like that. Yeah, if you maybe you're a, a, you know, dust jacket person, but maybe you're a shiny paper person. Okay, so thanks again to Isabel Greenberg for figuratively sitting down with us to talk about her newest book, Glass Town. Um, If you are interested in keeping up with Isabel's work, um, you can find her on Instagram at Isabel underscore Greenberg uh, and on Twitter at Isabel Greenberg, all one word. Um, And if you have any questions for her, uh, you can find her contact information, uh, her email contact information in our show notes. I don't want to read it out on air just because I don't know Yeah. if that's makes it e- easier to spam or not. So yeah. Yeah, we'll make it accessible, but not read it out. Yeah, but we'll um, also give you links to her website and uh, to places you can buy Glasstown. Yeah. Yeah, I hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed participating in that conversation. Yes, yeah. And I want to say a huge thanks to um, as well as publicist Sarah Ray for getting in touch with us and making this all possible. Yeah, I was so excited when we uh, got that email. We feel like we've made it as podcasters. <laughs> yes. Even though we're we're micro, we're micro podcasters. Micro things are trendy at the moment, though, like a micro pub. Yeah. A micro podcast. It's... Yeah. We're an artisan podcast. Mm. Bespoke. <laughs> For those with refined tastes. Everyone at work keeps telling me that they're listening now, though. Really? It's really odd. Yeah, because I put, obviously, because I put some episodes on the repository. Oh, yeah. and now people are like, oh, I've been listening to your podcast. It's so weird. When I was interviewing for jobs in 2018, a couple of the people I interviewed with said that they were fans of the podcast. But. Then they didn't hire me, so I don't know. <laughs> well, they can't be that good a hat fans. Uh, I'm still sad about it. <laughs> it. 
If you want to prove your fandom, you have to give us both jobs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then you'll be our number one, number one fans. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Bye. Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. The podcast is made possible by support from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, spread the word on social media, and, if you can, visit www.victorianscribblers.com slash support us to donate. Every dollar helps provide us with things like web hosting, subscriptions to research databases, and recording equipment, which all helps us bring more content to you. Music and sound effects for this podcast are available under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number no. 2 in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio. Our closing music this season is a 1911 recording of Come Josephine and My Flying Machine, performed by Ada Jones and Billy Murray, and made available by the UCSB Cylinder Audio Archives.